Hello, Stephen. Hello, Erica. We have just finished off the arc, parts three and four. That last episode, it was the bomb. Bah, you've been waiting. Well, you already said that, actually, before we watched it. And they've been waiting 50 minutes to use that joke. Actually, I'm pretty sure I used that joke twice tonight already. Yes, uh, if, if you are not familiar with it, the... We are still in the land of named individual episodes, and episode four is called The Bomb. Yeah. Third is the return. When they return, they return to the Ark, as we saw at the end of the the last one, and then they we they find that the monoids have been given voice, quite literally, and now they are the rulers and the overlords, and they're a, it's up to the humans to overthrow them and stuff. So, yeah, what would you think of this one? You know, I just think this story is not great um oh he, he's nodding listeners yeah. he's nodding and agreeing i i quite enjoyed actually the first couple parts even though i was annoyed by how stupid the leaders were actually the main leader guy was fine but uh when he was sick his sort of second in command wanted to just kill the only people who could possibly help them in any way which just seemed really dumb and it, it the leader here the number one monoid is just even dumber his his decisions every single one of them just doesn't make any sense it's stupid like how did these guys take control of of anything and the whole idea that i think they're trying to put forward is that the because the doctor says it at the end that the monoids were treated as slaves earlier that was not represented on screen at all it's certainly not in the text except for the fact that the doctor says it i mean they were in somewhat of a more servant role, but they also seemed like they were simpler creatures. They couldn't speak. Obviously, as we have learned here in, in this these last two parts, um, the humans actually helped create the technology or the biology to advance the monoids and make them, you know, sort of more um, they, so that they could speak. And I got the impression that they made them, you know, sort of smarter too, uh, which doesn't seem like something you would do with a slave race if that's what they were. So I feel like the humans were all on the up and up and then suddenly the monoids just decided to overthrow them for no good reason, except for that the doctor tells us that they were treated like slaves at the end. It's just, I just think it's not a very well-written story. No, that's a problem with... um you know, when, when a, a regular four-part story, there's in the in the pace that uh, classic Who was, especially in the 1960s, that's a nice way to sort of get some character development and stuff. Whereas when there's basically two two-parters back-to-back to sort of establish a story and sort of get characters and their motivations and everything, and, at you know, they do that at the cost of kind of... There's a lot of one-note characters in this. I'm no that is not really my problem. I no. agree that there are one note characters, but I think that just the ideas could have very easily been sold with just a couple of lines here and there or a couple of visual, you know, things to show that originally the monoids were slaves. There was nothing that gave us that. They they could have easily done that by showing monoids being mistreated even briefly in the beginning and that didn't happen. Well, they were <sighs> They weren't like beaten or anything like that as slaves, but you know, you know, it's, oh boy, some monoids have died of this cold. Oh, that's too bad. Boy, that's really rough. A human has died. Okay. That's it. That that now we've gone too far. Okay, you do have a point. Yep, yep. So that's a good point. Anyway, I, I do feel like overall it's just not particularly well well written. The the characters don't 
have motivations for the things that they do, or at least mm-hmm. they don't make sense. And there are definitely some cool ideas. Like if somebody just sat me down and sort of sketched out the idea for, you know, this great arc, taking the last of humanity and this other race, the monoids, and then they get to the planet and there's these, you know, invisible energy beings or whatever. Mm-hmm. It felt very original series Star Trek a little bit. Um I would I would say hey thumbs up that's really cool and you know I feel like the direction was really good I enjoyed I enjoyed this this one off uh, Michael Imason and you know the shots of the big statue and the performances were all kind of fine but it was a lot of a lot of standing around talking and I'm usually the first person to say I love stories in Doctor Who where they're standing around talking but I think that only works when you have really good performances from actors that you can see and relate to. This was a a bunch of guys in weird masks that are supposed to be talking through communicators and not doing a great job of having that match up to when they're actually talking. And the voices were grating. And I just, I, I just wanted them to hurry up and do stuff instead of talking back and forth. When there's not much to talk about, having scenes of people talking isn't much to talk about. I mean, I think about like my favorite Doctor Who story of all time, the Rebus operation, is a lot of people standing around talking or walking around talking. But I love it because the dialogue is so crystal and snappy and the characters are, you know, well fleshed out and developed and what they're doing matters. And I guess what they're doing here actually does matter to the plot. It's just it just feels like it plods along or shuffles along, perhaps would be appropriate. Yeah, Robert Holmes uh, once described writing dialogue as digging trenches, you know, just something that ha- you have to sort of do in order to sort of move the story along. And I can t- I just get the impression that Paul Erickson and Leslie Scott <laughs> womp womp. were busy digging trenches for the most part during this whole thing. Just to sort of, we need to get here, so let's just, they talk a little bit, and then we get, you know, there was, there was nothing really scintillating about the dialogue, was there? Nope. No. What was I going to mention, though? Oh, yeah, the, the the interesting thing that was sort of mentioned once and then forgotten about, it's, it's very new series and that the new series sort of, like, deals with the uh, circumstances and, you know, and to have the Doctor save the day at the end of Episode 2 and create a cure for this new plague that had stricken everyone, that plague actually mutates. And so it's actually the Doctor's actions that cause this revolution, which is interesting it's never really done dealt with that much in doctor who actual circumstances and so they did it here first mm-hmm. yeah i mean the doctor and dodo because yeah. she was the one that you know toddled along with a cold mm-hmm. but yeah it at this time and actually for a long time afterwards it's incredibly rare that we see the repercussions of what the doctor has done so that is an interesting thing it is also an interesting thing that it seems like in this episode they're kind of going wholeheartedly against the doctor's whole you can't change history not one line because they had a huge effect on this here so it's it's very much a case of you know when is it convenient to not change history when you're on Earth? And when yeah. is it convenient to be able to change history when you're on any other planet? Very human-centric view of the universe in this day and age. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, in episode four, The Bomb, you witnessed Doctor Who history. Technically, I feel like I'm witnessing Doctor Who history in every single episode. Oh, he just hung his head. Yeah. He's annoyed with he's annoyed with me. 
That was the first episode where the entire thing was shot not in story order, as was usually done, but on a set-by-set basis. Ooh. It's the little things like that. That and the little screen inlay stuff for the uh, screens and stuff that they did uh, for the big main screen in, in in the main room there. That makes me so intrigued by this story just because it's such a step forward technically um, that it makes me overlook the obvious shortcomings of the story. And that's what makes it interesting because, of course, I like I go for stuff like that, you understand. So I can understand why you didn't like it as much as I didn't. And watching the story, I was kind of going, this isn't the best. Well, you know, honestly, I still enjoyed it. I yeah, still yeah. like it. I just, I just think that it is is subpar in some very important ways. But I thought the the ideas and the story were interesting enough. And you know, I think the monoids are they're kind of nifty looking. It's just that they didn't do enough uh, to make it interesting. Um, I overall, I like the story just fine. Mm-hmm. And oh, I was going to say something. You were talking about the direction. Oh, the model work is another thing. Stephen's giving a thumbs up. Yeah, I think we both enjoyed the model work. You know, you can see the strings a little bit, but I I tend to ignore that. Oh, what's that face? Well, you couldn't. You probably wouldn't have been able to see the strings in 1966 on your 420, 405 line TV. You know. Yes, very good point. Mm-hmm. Yep. But the forced perspective shots of like the model, you know, they're being actually shooting it in studio or on film. I couldn't tell for one shot, and they would sort of like lower a model capsule right in front of the camera i thought that was quite clever and something you don't really see in doctor room yeah it looked it looked really good i mean you know from our perspective these days it it looks a little janky but i still think it looked cool and i'm sure at the time it was like oh neat yeah so i mean there's a lot to recommend in this story oh another thing um I can't remember if we have already talked about this before. We probably have. There is an essay in the book uh, Companion Piece, uh, which I think actually Liz, uh, Liz Miles, my Verity co-host, who also co-edited that book. I'm pretty sure it was her essay about Steven Taylor, um, like future space astronaut or something. I can't remember what it's called. Mm -hmm. But uh, part of that essay goes into detail about how cool it is that Steven is so so much basically a feminist he doesn't seem to have any qualms about treating women as equals and that is you know we saw that a lot with sarah kingdom and we see it again here you get the uh, the one one woman that we get to have talking but she actually takes a leadership role she agrees to stay on the ark because she has uh, knowledge and competence and she knows she's going to be needed for it and steven is just like all right let's get this done mm-hmm I know it's it speaks well on him, isn't it, Peter Purvis? Mm-hmm. Who is Stephen? He isn't. He doesn't. He plays Stephen. He's not actually Stephen Taylor, but I still equate him with Stephen Taylor, and he's an awesome person to listen to on interview. As people would know if they were at Li Who this weekend, because he was on stage being interviewed by Deb of all people, mm-hmm. um, hearing stories. Yes, my other Verity co-host, yeah. one of my other Verity co-hosts, Deb, interviewed him on stage today and had lovely things to tweet about it, and I am very jealous, and as much fun as I've been having sitting here watching Doctor Who with you, I still kind of wish that I was at L.I. Who, and you were at L.I. Who with our friends. Me too. We're sort of watching, we might blow through some Doctor Who this weekend just to sort of like um, get our Doctor Who fix, I suppose. Um, and you're really excited about the next one. Boy, oh boy, did you freak out during the last scene of the episode, which is the lead into the next story. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know what was coming next. Uh, I, I, 
I know probably I could pick all of the names of Doctor Who stories from this era, you know, out of a, a list of, of some sort, but I couldn't name them all from memory and I have no idea what order things come in. So when the doctor started disappearing when he was sneezing or coughing or whatever, I was like, what the frack is going on? I thought it was something to do with the refusions. I didn't know. Uh, it seemed like a logical thing. Um, so I was... I was with them on that one. So I didn't know what was happening. And then the title comes up that the next one is the Celestial Toy Room. Is that what the next episode's called? Yeah, which clearly means that the next story is going to be the Celestial Toy Maker, which I have never seen and I really know almost nothing about. And I know that it is a story that everybody says just sucks hard. And well, not everybody, because my mom has listened to The Celestial Toymaker, the uh, BBC audio of it, and she quite liked it. And I have a tendency to agree with my mom, Fangirl Prime. So I am super stoked to check out this story. I hope my expectations aren't too high. It, uh, it was a story that I think was very highly rated in the annals of received fan wisdom in the 1980s and stuff, probably from people like Jeremy Bentham. Um, and I think in recent years, it's sort of been reappraised as terrible. Hmm. I don't know who led the charge, but it might have been Rob Shearman, because I know that they sort of dumped off. I think they were expecting to like it in re- their book, Running Through Corridors, Volume 1. And I think they sort of like, oh, no, this is actually quite poor, they thought. Um, it might just be because it went through three writers basically before it reached the screen for various reasons that we'll get into in the next episode. Um, I haven't watched it slash listened to it in quite a while, so I'm intrigued to see what uh, I think about this as well. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm, now I'm a little worried because I am expecting to like it, but I'm also expecting to like it in a way... You know, I'm, I'm expecting it to be the kind of thing that other people would think is crap. So mm-hmm. but we'll see how that uh, that goes. Also, the other reason I'm excited about this is simply because, uh, speaking of Deb, she has a fun little bit of headcanon, um, got a lot of headcanon going on with Dodo. Yeah. So she's got some, some headcanon involved with uh, Dodo and the Celestial Toymaker, which, should I share that now or should I save it? Let's save it because, you know, uh, the headcanon uh, for Dodo and... Um and her parentage is is has rocked a couple people's world on the internet uh, <laughs> after our episode that came out about that. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to further rocking <laughs> the world of received fan wisdom. Cool. Yeah. yeah actually, I, I just uh, today signed up for, or not signed up for, but threw my hat in the ring for a number of panels at Chicago TARDIS, which is coming up in a few weeks. Actually, where Rob Shearman, I think, is going to be. So we can ask him about this story uh, or possibly disagree with him. We'll see. Uh, I think we'll have watched it by then. Um, And where was I going with that? Um, Panels. (laughs) Panels. Right. Uh, and and as I was going through the, the list of panels, I was picking the ones that seemed the most interesting to me. And there was one that I can't remember the name of it, but it was something to do with headcanon. So like talking about things that are in your headcanon for Doctor Who. And probably last week, if I would have been on the ball and signed up for these panels right away when they came out mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago... <clears throat> I don't know if I would have signed up for that one because headcanon is not usually something that I delve into a ton. I tend to be a little bit more sort of prescriptive and literal when it comes to, to what's on the screen. But because I just sort of came up, just 
on the show Mm -hmm. came up with the whole Stephen is Dodo's great, 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 you know, X number of greats uh, grandfather. I just thought that was perfect timing. I kind of want to share it with the the folks at Chicago TARDIS. So I did put my name down for that panel. I don't know if I will end up on it. Scheduling scheduling a convention is a very complicated job. So I will not be upset if I'm not on that panel. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I usually do a few interviews at Chicago TARDIS every year. And I don't know. Peter Purvis is also going to be there. Mm. He's at L.I. Who and he's also going to be at Chicago TARDIS. And I don't know if I'm slated to interview him. But if I am, I am most certainly going to float the idea of Stephen being Dodo's great to the power of 20 <laughs> grandfather to him and see what he thinks. Oh my God, that would be awesome. Yeah. Yep, that would be very cool. Mm-hmm. All right then. Well, I think we talked more about what was coming up with the Celestial <laughs> Toymaker more than we talked about the Ark, but uh, that might indicate how much we thought about the Ark. But hey, the picture's moved and that won't be happening for the next three episodes. Episode four of Celestial Toymaker does exist, so we get Ooh. to see a little bit of it, but... Uh, we're back to the recons. And excitingly, one more thing about the Celestial Toymaker. When uh, we watch it, are there telesnaps for this one? I don't know if there are or not. Now I can't remember. Okay, I'm not going to re- withdraw that <laughs> and wait until the next time we talk, which might be tonight. It might be. Because you, you, you are intrigued to see episode one. I'm pretty excited. I think we should at least watch episode one. Okay, we're going to watch episode one of the Celestial Toy Room on the next episode of Lazy Doctor Who. Goodbye. Goodbye.